Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Welcome everyone to Seller Roundtable number 13 with Andy Arnott and Amy Weiss and our special guest today, Dylan Carter. And we're going to be talking today about the FBA wholesale model. Um, so thank you, Dylan, for being here. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me. And, um, and we're just going to, you know, in our normal seller roundtable fashion, we're just going to probe you with a ton of questions and we want you to give us all your secrets. Love it. I got ready to go. I unlocked it. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Well, this is not what I expected. Um, (laughs) No, I'm excited. This it's fun to be able to talk about this stuff and really dive deep into the principles and the non-fluffy side of selling on Amazon, which is super straightforward. Like it's really not that complicated. That's the cool part that we're going to dive into today. So I'm very excited. I love it. So um, let me just pull up my my uh, in-depth list of, list of questions for you. So let's start out, Dylan, by why don't you tell us a, a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, so when I got started kind of testing the waters as we all do selling on Amazon, um, I was a personal trainer. I was doing that full time. I loved what I did. Um, but I, I always had this weird fascination with physical products because the scalability of it. So I wanted to test that. And like all of us, you hear about Amazon FBA, resale arbitrage on a blog, a podcast, whatever. And eventually you're like, screw it. I'm just going to try. I'm going to buy five things, ship it in and see how it goes. So I did that and it went well and I enjoyed it. At a certain point, I would say a few months in, I wasn't taking the business seriously. I didn't even consider it a business at that point. It was just something I was experimenting with. Um, and then me and the GM did not see eye to eye on a few things. <laughs> and so we decided to part ways, which was totally fine. And I was left with a interesting decision. I could open up my own personal training facility, which I had enough clients. I could do that. And I had clients asking me to do that. Or I could make my life super miserable as every entrepreneur does and just figure out this Amazon thing, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> I don't know why, but I did. So... I tried my best to scale retail arbitrage and tested the waters with OA. Still could not for the life of me figure out OA. It's not my specialty by any means. But retail arbitrage, I did good. But I immediately realized I wanted to do either wholesale or private label. Wholesale for me seemed very daunting. And I assumed that I needed thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to get started. And that just really wasn't the case when I approached it. And so what I ended up doing was giving myself a protocol that said, you cannot buy any inventory for Amazon unless it is wholesale. So I actually stopped sourcing profitable RA items to figure out wholesale on my own and eventually did that and (laughs) turned it into a system. And I'm like, okay, I got to figure it out now. It's not hard. Um, But I essentially put myself through the gauntlet, if you will, of figuring things out. Well, I love that you kind of said this is what I'm going to do. You didn't really follow anybody else's formula per se. And you said, this is what I'm going to do. And this is my rules and I'm going to follow them. And that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I like that. Um, so 
speaking of wholesale, can can we just tell our listeners what is because you know you get confused with uh, the wholesale when you talk about having a wholesale business. Well, that's different than what we're talking about today. We're talking about the FBA model of being a wholesale Amazon seller. And so, can you tell us about that? Like the definition yeah, of like, what is this? You know, like what is your business model and, and yeah. what is the wholesale <laughs> business model? Yeah, there's so many terms that I get thrown around and use interchangeably. And unfortunately, I do it sometimes too. Um, the way we approach wholesale and what, what we mean by wholesale is we find products that do very well on Amazon already. We then reverse source to find the actual brands and open up wholesale accounts with those brands so that we can purchase wholesale units and then sell individually on Amazon FBA. And so we end up building really good relationships either with the brand itself, which is in my opinion, preferable because it's better margins, more of a moat around uh, your business model and having those accounts. Or if you can't get those, which is some, sometimes certainly the case, a actual distributor of those products, but we're buying in bulk. So we're buying hundreds, if not thousands of units per SKU per month. Wow. Um, that seems like it would be very costly, but I'm sure that we will get into more about how people can maybe scale that model. But um, yep. I guess my next question for you would be, uh, why would someone choose this wholesale model over re- retail arbitrage or private label? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get asked this a lot, actually. So in my perspective, the way I view the models, if you had to put them on a graph, and I've actually done this on a blog post. If you have, let's just say, regular graph, right? A lot of people start with retail arbitrage because it is easy to get started with. However, it's harder to scale. Not that it is hard to scale, but it is harder to scale because to scale that is more people, right? More employees. At the top end, so if you have that down here, at the top end, you have private label, which is very easy to scale because it's systematized to be that. But and this is my opinion, harder to get started with relative to the other business models, right? Uh, Longer lead times in terms of getting the business up and running, getting it cash flowing, getting it profitable. Um, There's pros and cons to each one, but wholesale, it's somewhere in the middle between retail arbitrage and private label. You get the ease of getting into it. The barriers to entry is really not that high. It's not as high as you would uh, assume or anticipate but it is just as scalable as private label. Now, well, I take it back. It's not just as because you can obviously like scale up a little bit better in terms of sales, but the logistics of it are very easy to scale and you can still run with enough margin, profitable PPC ads, um, listing optimization now makes sense. All these things that you learn about with private label apply and you get benefits from in wholesale if you approach it the right way. Got it. So if people are wanting to like get started in wholesales, maybe they're already doing retail arbitrage or maybe they haven't chosen a business model at all yet. Um, What are some basic requirements for getting started? You mentioned you buy hundreds or even thousands of products. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, oh man, I need a warehouse. I need like a lot of stuff. Like, can I do this out of my house? Like what are the basic requirements for getting started in wholesale? Sure. So oddly enough, I've never seen my wholesale inventory. I do and use prep centers. So they handle all that for me. I don't need to worry about it. Now, 
when you're getting started, that's a good way to go. As you really scale out the system, now it makes more sense to have a warehouse because fixed versus variable costs, you know, all that comes later. Um, in terms of what you need, you need a resale permit. That's just something you get in your state based off the EIN number of your LLC. It, most of your brands are going to require that to not charge you sales tax. That's all it is. Got to have it. It's free, super easy. It's like a day to get it. Um, that, obviously, you need a little bit of money. <laughs> um, and a credit card. Most suppliers actually want to use a credit card. I actually don't have any that want me to do a wire transfer, although that's obviously an op- option there. Um, that's kind of it, <laughs> to be honest. You need that and you need the time and the focus to be able to call suppliers. What What is vastly different in re- retail arbitrage, private label, and wholesale is within wholesale, what we really do is B2B sales. It's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's simple, not easy. Simple in the sense of, you source great products, you call the brands, you negotiate, you get the accounts, you get great pricing, and you're good to go. It's hard in the sense of you're going to get some rejections. And a lot of people are not used to that. And in terms of the money, because we kind of touched on that for a second, you don't need tens of thousands of dollars. When I started, I had $1,500. That's, that's what I had allotted for wholesale. That was it. The MOQs or the minimum order quantities are not as high as you would think. I rarely see them over $500. It's either going to be in terms of units or dollars. I typically find dollars uh, are more prevalent, but you don't need a lot. The cool thing is, and I've done this, I've tested it with other sellers that have gotten started from scratch. You can have six to 10 SKUs and do six figures, at least annually in wholesale revenue. Like you don't need a lot. But just because you can move a thousand units per month doesn't mean you have to buy a thousand units per month. You just need to meet the MOQs, and those might be a case of twenty-five. And so you don't need as much as you think you do. Got it. So the main problem I, I did some wholesale myself just to build out my own brand as a private label seller. It's a good option to um, sell other brands that are in your same niche and you can actually build out your store. And it's a great way to scale as a private label seller. If you're not ready to add a bunch more new private label products yet. So I did some wholesale initially to do that. And I still have some of those products on my Amazon shelves. But the problem I would say is when you source a product through a wholesaler um, or through a brand, you buy a lot of that product and you might not be able to sell through it and you certainly can't return it like you can if you're a retail arbitrage seller, right? You buy it and you're stuck with it. Um, So, you know, if those products come in and they're not the quality that you wanted and and they come into a prep center and you know, so it, you definitely want to be aware that if you have an MOQ of $500 and, you know, you make those purchases, you want to make sure you do your research because you can't return them. <laughs> uh, if they come in damage, you might be able to get a little bit of a, uh, of a refund or something like that. But you, you definitely want to make sure that whatever it is that you're sourcing, you are sourcing larger quantities. So just like private label, you want to make sure that you're making the right decisions. But... Speaking of that, our next question for you is how do you source products and what kind of margins are you looking for? Sure. There's two things that I want to touch on what you're just saying. One, risk mitigation is incredibly important with this business model, just like it would with private label. 
So what I mean by risk mitigation is the first, what I call a test order, the first order is always small. It's the minimum I need to place. And even then I negotiate smaller order quantities with the context of, listen, this is a test order. I just need to make sure the logistics are good. But I'm mitigating my risk in the sense of I would rather lose money on 24 units than 500, right? Makes complete sense. It's logical. But what a lot of people end up doing, especially when they get started with this, is they see based off the math, I can estimate I'm going to move 100 units per month and they buy 100 units. I guarantee you there's something that you are probably not seeing right now, especially if you're new to it and you don't have experience and know what to look for. So build in risk mitigation so that when things do go wrong, they're not that bad. Alternatively, when you have accounts directly with brands, they will actually accept returns. Now, not returns in the sense of it was purchased, but they will actually purchase back your inventory, assuming it was not touched by a customer for you know anywhere from 80, well, actually, I would say 70 to 90% of the price. So you're still going to take a loss, but again, you can mitigate that loss instead of being 100%, it might be 70 to 80%. Um, so it depends on the brand and, and the account you have opened. Um, but there's so many ways you can mitigate risk, but you have to build mit- risk mitigation into your system. Now, how do I source wholesale products? It's super simple. Like it's ridiculously simple. I start on Amazon. I pick a category or a subcategory. Um, doesn't matter which one, you know, I don't really touch supplements, anything that's really heavily private labeled. I don't touch. It just, it ends up being a waste of time. Um, I use a few Chrome extensions, one DS Amazon quick view that just saves me time as I'm going page by page. I can look at, you know, dozens of listings and extract out, okay, how many FBA sellers are there? Is Amazon currently on the listing? And what's the BSR? Without having to go listing by listing, I can do it page by page now. Um, and obviously Kiva, right? That's kind of like a mainstay. So once I have those installed, I'm good to go. I pick my category. Then I add a few filters. One is four stars and up. I want a good quality product. A lot of people have concerns about returns. They're like, all right, well, if I purchase 500 units and I can move 500 units per month, what if 200 get returned? That comes to having a good, high-quality product that people already like, right? So I want to do that. Two, I want to make sure Amazon's not on the listing. I'm just doing this while I'm scanning through. Um, DS Amazon Quick View will actually show you that. Three, a minimum price tag. It used to be 25. And if you're getting started, 25 is totally appropriate. Anything below 20, I don't touch. Anything below 25, I'm, con- I'm willing to consider it if I already have the account and it's additional skew that I'm going to carry. Lately, it's been more closer to 50 and above. And don't be afraid to do 100 and above. The less competition there is at the higher price points, because a lot of people getting into this, oh, it's going to cost so much money. I got to say under $20. No, you don't. I promise you, you don't. (laughs) Aim higher because there's less competition. So once I find as I'm scanning based off those filters, a, a product, I simply right-click, open it in a new tab until I have you know a crazy amount of tabs open. And then I start analyzing the key parts um, for six months, if not a year, depending on how much is available. And I'm looking for a few things. I'm looking to see, has Amazon ever been on this listing? And if so, for how long? Right? Might not be a big deal. It might be. We're not sure yet. I'm also looking for a stable or what I call a mature product. Um, 
with retail arbitrage, you see a lot of price volatility, right? It's all over the place, right? I'm not looking for that with wholesale. I'm okay if there's a little bit of volatility, but I'm looking for a product that has stabilized its price. I don't care to carry inventory that I cannot purchase 12 months from now. That's what I'm looking for. It's not about what it can do to my business this month. It's six, eight, 12 months down the road. You know, that's Dylan, what, really what matters. you just said is really key because that is something that I really struggled with when I was doing the wholesale model that would have changed my business had I focused on the longer term because what happens, and I've seen this with a few clients that are in wholesale, is if you start competing with the retail arbitragers, you're going to get into trouble because most of them yeah. are coupon stackers and stuff and they make their money on the back end. So they don't, they don't care how low the price has to go. So it's great to use a tool like Keepa, like you mentioned, to see how much the price has wavered and how many sellers have been on it and make sure that you know you can uh, be on it for a long time. So it might take a longer research process to find a product like that. But when you land it, that can mean uh, long-term profits for you, right? I got exactly. A, I got a I'm not little... Oh, sorry, Dylan. Yeah, you please. don't mind just be, before I forget. Um, quick follow-up to that yeah. is, um, in the, on that same sense, like on a listing, um, like how are you competing? You know, like one of the reasons why I love private label is, you know, if you're brand registered and stuff, it's, it's your listing. You don't have to compete. You know, I feel like you're competing, um, you know, with a, a whole slew of other people like retail arbitrage and all that kind of stuff. So kind of what's the theory with, uh, keeping the buy box without, you know, racing to the bottom. And also what about competing with the manufacturer? Cause if you come in, you know, the manufacturer, you know, I'm sure they have, um, um, uh, I forget what it's called, but like the minimum price you can sell it for. I don't know. I can't think of the price right now, but are the, the, map. Yeah, the, the, the map? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, how, how is, you know, how is that playing out? Cause to me that, that always just seems like a huge, huge disadvantage. So oddly enough, <laughs> a lot of people think that map agreements are bad. I disagree. 98% of what I carry is map enforced and I love it because it's a pricing floor. Now, if MAP is at, let's say, $24.95, you're selling at $24.95. Um, I look for listings, and it's easy to see when you know what you're looking for to see if it's at MAP. Now, can you have certain situations where somebody goes below MAP? Sure. With wholesale, again, it's the long game. So if I see somebody go below MAP, they're doing one of two things. They're trying to tank, which it's not going to happen because, you know, let's say there's eight of us on here, and we're all wholesalers. We're not moving. So the likelihood of that happening, probably low. But the second thing that can happen, which is more likely, is they're trying to liquidate. So they're going to sell out. They're going to pull the buy box. That's fine. They're going to pull it for a week. Cool. I don't care. Because you're not going to restock. So me not having sales for that listing, let's say for a week, not a big deal. Because I'm, again, I'm going for the long run. So what's a week out of a year? Not a big deal. And it's about that relationship you have with the brand. So you saying, hey, just letting you know, this seller went below map. These sellers are not. I'm obviously one of them. Just keeping you up to par as, as far as what's going on on the listing. But I just wanted you to know so we have a tighter relationship, right? Um, I love map policies because you would assume that they are negatives. But again, it comes down to the listing, right? So if, if I'm looking at a listing that is stabilized, we're good. It's probably got map. <laughs> um, so, so it's less of an issue. Now, if I see there's map and there's one seller who keeps pulling 
and they keep restocking, then yeah, I'm going to have a conversation with the brand and say, hey, do you know this? What's going on? Maybe it makes sense for me to purchase, maybe not. As far as competing against the brand, I don't typically do that. Now, if I see the brand is on the listing before I call them my initial call, I'm going to ask them, hey, I see you guys are on there. What's your plan? Do you want to take over more of it? Are you just on it because you feel the need to? What's your strategy? What do you want to get out of selling on Amazon? Are you just waiting for the right partner for uh, your third-party sales to come on board and you just haven't found that person yet? What's going on? Sometimes it's not a big deal. Sometimes it can be, right? They might give you a map of $24.95 and then they say at $24.90. I've had that happen and that's totally fine. When that happens and we've had a good conversation so far, I call them up, say, hey, what's going on? We have a map agreement. If we're going to have a good relationship, it needs to work both ways. It's not, okay, not a big deal. I'm going to break map. I'm going down. Sorry, you, you didn't really honor your side of it. Um, in which case, I'm going to liquidate and get out of that listing. Um, that happens not that often. It's happened one time. Um, as far as competing for the buy box, though, it's really not that bad. Like I don't price below buy penny. I match. And again, I'm looking for... The way, the way to approach this is really you're looking for the 1% to 2% of products on Amazon that work with this version of wholesale. So that means there's a lot of listings that may be profitable, but they're really going to be too much work for the reward, in which case I pass on those all day long. Because I'm like, yeah, I can make money on that. But the price is like this. And there's a lot of sellers jumping in, jumping out. I'm okay. Because it's not, again, stabilized or mature. It really comes down to what is the state of that listing and everything else stems from that. Got it. So, and then you said, um, you know, as your second part of that, your sourcing criteria, so you kind of talked about that. Um, you break down that you want it to be stabilized. And then just to go over your overall buying criteria again, you said you yeah. go for 30% gross return on investment, $4 in profit per unit, and 30 plus units per month in sales, I'm guessing that is. And then Amazon yeah. is not on the listing. Is there anything else in criteria that you wanted to add to that? Um, not really. That's my main ones. Now, the, the minimum ROI is, is flexible in the sense of if the dollar amount of profit is much higher, but the ROI is, let's say, 20 to 25%, I'll pick that up. Like I have a unit that does $54. Yeah, $54 and change in profit per unit. It does 20% ROI. Now, with how much dollar amount of margin I have, I can profitably run PPC ads and pay an additional $5 for every additional sale. So that one was doing 30 units organically. I can now run PPC, scale that to 50 to 60, and I'm still making 50 bucks per unit. So the ROI isn't as high, but the reason why I have the $4 minimum is I found that's just enough to do well with PPC on wholesale products because there's typically less competition. Um, PPC with wholesale, by the way, is so underutilized. It's ridiculous. I keep trying to like beat this into people's heads. Test PPC. <laughs> and this is why I don't like products that are, you know, under $20. You might have great ROI, but you're making two bucks. I, I don't care about like, it, it's not about one. And this is something that's very important too. It's not about one individual variable. It's about all of them added together. That equates to something. So instead of considering it, what's your ROI? No, what's the total equation? that matters the most. And when you approach it from that way, you have a holistic view 
of that product, that listing, and what you're capable of doing and what the opportunities are, that's where you start to make great money with wholesale. Got it. So (laughs) the other thing I'm wondering, what I used to do is I would create unique bundles out of wholesale products. So Mm -hmm. I would go with some of the larger wholesale providers that um, kind of had a mix of different stuff versus just one brand. And I would create kind of unique bundles out of things. But that required some packaging on my side. Or I would make multi-packs out of stuff that other sellers were not selling that I could source well. Um, But again, that required a lot of prep, a lot of packaging. So, you know, me and the kids, we'd be in here packing Vaseline into multi-pack poly bags, making sure we had all (laughs) of our stickers and everything. And, you know, there was a decent profit on it, but it was a lot of work. So how much work are we talking? And how do you double check that if you're sending these products to a prep center, how do you double check that they're being packaged in a way um, that is going to work for you? Yeah, it definitely comes down to trust with the prep center. Um, it's okay if you test a few. I like asking for recommendations on anything that I go with, especially when it comes down to a service. Um, my prep center knows more about shipping logistics into Amazon. Than I ever care to know. Don't care. <laughs> they will hit me up and say, Hey dude, just letting you know, this is a new product. Um, it needs this, this, and this. You cool with that. Here's what it's going to cost. Yeah, do what you got to do. So your prep center isn't just going to receive something, label it, and be like, all right, bye. They're, they should check and say, okay, what, what does this actually need to ship in? They're going to do their due diligence to provide a good, high-quality service for you. That matters tremendously. As far as like the quality assurance stuff, um, you'll see that, obviously, as you ship into Amazon, if you start having errors, you reach out to your prep center. Hey, why am I having shipping errors? What's like, why are you guys not following policies here? That's a conversation you might have to have. I haven't. Mine's been pretty good um, to the tune that I had some kind of like porcelain figurines that I was sourcing and they would get broken from time to time. And they would come in, they'd say, Hey, you said you had 30 count of these, 50 counts of these. Actually, we got, uh, let's say, 48 counts of where it should have been 50. So you're missing two of this specific SKU and three broke out of the 30 and they'll send me pictures. So all I have to do is copy that, send it to my um, supplier and say, Hey, we're missing two of this SKU. And Oh, by the way, I need a refund for these. They were, they were broken and shipped. Perfect. That's in their policy. They go, Hey, not a problem. Um, We can either send you a run now or apply it to your next purchase. I just apply it to the next purchase. Just keep track of it. Um, And so Dylan, not, like it, not hard. <laughs> so I love that you're outsourcing things that you're, you, cause that's really how we scale our business. And you know, even it if works. you're paying a dollar <laughs> per unit to have that unit prepped, like who cares? How are you going to scale that on your own? If you and the kids are packing Vaseline into poly bags, right? So, I mean, I love that you're using a prep center. Love that. But on that note, and I know our listeners are probably thinking the same thing I am. There is a lot of nightmares out there with prep centers, right? They're, they're fly by night. Sure. They're open one day, close the next day. How do you mm-hmm. find a good prep center when you're, in the, when you're wanting to get into the wholesale business model and, and outsource that or any business model and outsource that portion of your business? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we just had an issue in our Facebook group where, and I forget the name of the prep center that they were using. They got shut down. They are now being sued by all their clients, some being, you know, in our Facebook group because they stopped shipping in, said that 
they didn't receive anything. And oh, by the way, there was $100,000 in inventory sitting in their warehouse. It happens. Um, listen, business is risky. The simple fact is you get rewarded for taking risk. Um, but again, risk mitigation always comes into play. So that comes down, in my opinion, to asking for recommendations. Not just who do you use, who do you use and how long have you used them and where have, that, where have they gone wrong, right? Because if you've used a prep center for three years, the likelihood of them continuing business is pretty high. Now, having multiples, absolutely important, right? Starting out, you need one. Don't care where they are, you need one. Um, eventually, as you grow your suppliers, you start to break them out into regions. So you might have a West Coast prep center, a East Coast prep center, and maybe a Midwest prep center, depending on, you know, you got to have enough volume for it to make sense um, financially for you. Um, yeah, I just, I really haven't had those issues because I do my due diligence. Like get on the phone and say, okay, listen, um, if, this were, if this were to happen, what would you and, and see and, and say, okay, that's great. That's a hypothetical. Walk me through your most recent issue. Every company has issues. Don't act like you don't. You can't tell me you haven't had any issues ever. Listen, it happens, right? We're humans. We make errors. Just tell me how you handled it and how you made it right. I just want to know that you have you know, my best interest at heart and that if something does go wrong, because listen, it does, that you're going to look out for me and make it right. It's not a big deal. We, you know, I had a, a small issue where my turnaround time is typically two, two days. It can be a single day, but typically two days. And they had a forward um, from a private label. So it was a China, uh, yeah, a freight forward from China. And it was like 100,000 units. And they're like, listen, we got to get this done. Um, we got to pull people. You're going to get backlogged. It's going to take a week to get out. Okay, not a big deal. They made it up to me and they said, listen, you know, this is just how it is right now. It's a logistical nightmare. We don't know what to do, but we're going to work ourselves through this thing and make it right. But I want you to know and be transparent that you're going to get pushback. And here's why. As long as I have transparency and I know what's going on. Listen, I run a business just like they do. Sometimes, you know, things get overwhelming for me too. So I'm like, hey, okay, not a big deal. I'll go ahead and place another restock order. So I know I'm be out of stock. That sucks. It's not great. But what else are they going to do, right? The fact that they were transparent about that whole situation with me, um, and my, my rep gets on the phone all the time, right? The level of communication and transparency matters tremendously. You can gauge that pretty well with any business. So if they're not wanting to jump on the phone, if they don't want to have an hour-long conversation for you to ask questions, move on. There's tons of them. But again, ask, who do you use and how long have you used them? And how long have they been in business? Those, those really matter. Got it. I think Andy has a question. Uh, yeah. So quick question. Um, Dylan, I'm, I'm, I'm the private label guy. So people always ask me about like retail arbitrage and wholesale. I'm like, don't do that. That's a waste of time. <laughs> but I've, I've never really gone, you know, deep into it. So, um, but the way that I'm coming at it is that like the reason why I really label is because you're like you know on the long game you're building your own brand if you go yeah <laughs> yes yeah, honey i'll be right in. um so <laughs> the whole thing is that um if you're if if you're not building a brand you're you're selling somebody else products 
when you're going for the, the, the long term, the long game, you know, more and more these wholesale brands are going direct to Amazon. So I'm just a little bit worried about like the long game for wholesale. That being said, guys, I'm going to bow out as you can see my daughter's and theater on the recording and uh, thanks a bunch guys. Cool. All right, Andy, have a good one, man. Thanks, Andy. (laughs) Thanks for the nice view of Hawaii and enjoy your time here. (laughs) Thanks. Later, guys. Thanks for tuning in to part one of this episode. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at sellerroundtable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, sellerseo.com and amazingathome.com.